0: Hi there, Uh, I'm Norma Andrews, I'm a professor at the University of Maryland, and in the second part of my seminar, I will be discussing with you a series of surprising uh, findings uh, we made over the years, and these findings gave us uh, unexpected insights over the mechanism by which cells reseal wounds on their plasma membrane. Uh, as I mentioned in my first talk, a major breakthrough in the field of plasma membrane repair came from these early studies of Harburn and Chambers, who demonstrated that the presence of calcium uh, in the extracellular medium was essential for membrane receiving. And what they suggested at the time uh, was that this process might occur through aggregation of proteins that might form a clot-like structure structure, like in blood clotting, and that this would be responsible for preventing loss of the intracellular components. Uh, Very interestingly, decades later, there is uh, uh, quite a bit of evidence that that they uh, were right, that there is a role for proteins that are present in the cytosol and that respond to calcium influx by associating with membranes. So, one class of proteins that does this are the annexins which uh, undergo conformational changes uh, uh, when they are exposed to calcium, and they associate with phospholipids on the plasma membrane. And this uh, image here is from a study... uh, one of these studies, showing that... um, this can be directly visualized after injuring cells, the association of annexin 5 with membranes around wounds. And what these authors proposed is that these annexins would, would form a two dimensional array that would then not only prevent uh, further expansion of the wound, but perhaps facilitate the uh, uh, subsequent steps that reseal the membrane. Uh, it, it is very possible, actually, that additional uh, calcium. Uh, responsive proteins in the cytosol, such as transglutaminases, for example, that have the capacity of cross-linking other proteins when exposed to calcium, play a role in forming a temporary clot. But what we also know, and this from the uh, landmark studies of Paul McNeil and Richard Steinhardt, is that the membrane is capable of really completely uh, resealing. The bilayer is reconstituted. And what uh, they showed that this process involves exocytosis, fusion uh, of intracellular compartments that donate membrane to promote uh, the receding. So, this is when uh, my lab entered uh, the field, because, as I explained in our first lecture, we were doing something completely different, studying invasion of an intracellular parasite. And we stumbled into this unexpected behavior of lysosomes. The lysosomes actually have a molecular machinery on their surface uh, that allows them to bind to the plasma membrane and fuse, releasing their contents. And uh, uh, using these... uh, molecules that we uh, found on the surface of lysosomes, we could manipulate the process and really uh, determine that lysosomes were very good candidates for the vesicles initially identified as important uh, for exocytosis and plasma membrane repair. One molecule that was extremely useful for us in these studies was synaptotagmin seven, which is a a member of a family of uh, calcium sensors that are anchored on membranes, and they are not part of the SNARE complex that promotes. Membrane resealing, but they have been shown extensively by several labs that they confer calcium sensitivity to membrane fusion reactions. So, what we found is that there is a very uh, broadly uh, expressed isoform of this family, SnaptoTygrin 7, that is present on the membrane of lysosomes, and uh, this uh, molecule uh, facilitates the response of lysosomes to calcium influx during plasma membrane wounding. So, there was quite a bit of skepticism. Uh, in the beginning, when we started proposing that we had found the lysosomal isoform of synaptotagmin, uh, because these uh, proteins were mostly studied before in uh, synaptic vesicles of neurons where they mediate... they are very important players on the release of neurotransmitters. So, uh, it it, it was not expected, since at that time, lysosomes were not uh, viewed as compartments that uh, could uh, uh, undergo calcium-regulated exocytosis. So, what you do in these cases... this is very common in science. You just have to persist, and you have to think of independent ways to demonstrate... Uh, something that you think is going on. So, for us, uh, uh, one of the ways in which we could could settle this issue of uh, lysosomal isoform of synaptotagmin was by figuring out how synaptotagmin 7 is targeted to lysosomes. So, when this protein is synthesized in the endoplasmic reticulum and then travels through the Golgi, uh, it was not clear how we could reach lysosomes because uh, the cytosolic domain, the contains these uh, calcium-sensing domains, doesn't have a classical targeting motif that can take proteins to lysosomes. So, what uh, we found uh, in the lab was that S7 is modified by lipids, is palmitylated, and this palmitylation allows it to associate with a lysosomal resident protein, CD63, which is a classical, very well-known lysosomal protein that has a very well-defined targeting motif in its cytosolic domain. So basically synaptotagmin 7 catches a ride with CD63 to get to lysosomes. And as you can see in this experiment here, when we just tag these different proteins with different colors, we can see that in blue uh, CD63, in uh, green um, synaptotagmin 7, and in red LAMP1, which is an independent marker for lysosomes that does not associate with uh, synaptotagmin 7. And you can see that in this overlay image that we can see a very good co-localization between these three proteins, really indicating CID7 on lysosomes. We just have to mutate one amino acid on the cytoplasmic tail, on this targeting motif of CD63, to completely change this picture. And you see here that this mutation is... um, Uh, change in the distribution of CD63 from lysosomes to the plasma membrane, and that exactly the same happens with synaptotagmin 7, with this mutation that was done on uh, CD63. And this uh, manipulation did not alter at all the lysosomal localization of LAMP1. Really... uh, demonstrating that uh, this is the process by which this isoform of synaptotagmin gets targeted to lysosomes and then uh, functions there as a calcium sensor. And this was really important for us, because at this time, we already had quite a bit of data indicating that SN7 uh, de- depletion in cells or in animals interferes with plasma membrane repair. And what is shown here is uh, knockout mice uh, deficient in SN7 and a cross-section of their skeletal muscle. Again, as in the other examples that I showed you before of other proteins involved in plasma membrane repair, there is an inflammatory infiltrate that develops over time time in... these mice, Uh, really uh, consistent with uh, other evidence we have uh, of consequences of defective plasma membrane repair. We can see by electron microscopy in these fibers that some of the muscle fibers of these mice are completely infiltrated by macrophages. And we have also additional inflammatory cells that really characterize this uh, response uh, in these mice as an inflammatory myositis. So, uh, what was really interesting about this is that we were studying synaptotagmines that have these two independently folding uh, C2 domains under uh, cytosolic domain. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the same year, actually, that we published uh, muscle defect in the synaptotagnin-7-deficient mice, uh, a paper came out from Kevin Campbell's lab showing that a human form of muscular dystrophy that was known to be caused by mutations in this ferlin, uh, was also caused by defects in plasma and repair. repaired. It was the first time that this type of muscular dystrophy was associated with past membrane repair. And what's very interesting is that this is a much larger protein. uh, And it doesn't have only two uh, 2 calcium binding domains, but it has up to seven And this protein is actually associated with the membrane of muscle fibers, with the sarcolemma. So, uh, with all these calcium-binding domains really uh, in direct contact with the cytosol. And this is one of several other types of indications we have, that muscle cells have a specialized machinery, since this ferlin is expressed mostly in muscle cells, that this additional machinery might be necessary for cells that are uh, exposed frequently to membrane damage. So, this brings us to how is this working, right? So, uh, the first models that were proposed in this field uh, were by Paul McNeil, uh, who suggested, as I mentioned already, that uh, he saw this exocytic response happening during exocytosis. And then on microscopy studies he kept consistently seeing an aggregation of vesicles that was very close to the wound site. So, what he proposed that calcium was doing is that by flowing through the wound, it was causing homotypic fusion of these compartments, and then uh, this would form a large patch of membrane that would somehow be applied to the wound and reseal the membrane. Uh, Richard Steinhardt, proposed a different model in which also the major player would be exocytosis of intracellular compartments. But in this case, uh, uh, what he proposed is that the reduction in tension of the plasma membrane, with exocytosis happening in the vicinity of the site where calcium flows into the cells, this would release tension on the membrane. And he actually could directly measure this with laser tweezers. And it would be this release in tension that would favor spontaneous resealing. So, what got really interesting was, uh, later on, when papers started coming out, that cells can also repair a very different type of wound on their membranes in a calcium-dependent manner, Uh, which is what is shown here with this bacterial... very well-studied bacterial toxin, streptolysin O, that this is uh, the structure of this protein, Uh, monomers of this toxin uh, bind to cholesterol on plasma membranes, then oligomerize, and this complex then uh, uh, suffers a vertical collapse in which a stable protein-line pore is formed on the membrane. So, this is a very stable pore, and it would be uh, uh, very hard to imagine how this kind of membrane wound could be... uh, Repaired by a membrane patch coming from the inside or by just releasing tension in the membrane. So, we uh, started working with these toxins in the lab, and what this uh, video here is showing is that we have a calcium sensitive dye loaded into the cells and we really can directly visualize how transient is the influx of calcium, that instead of keeping the uh, intracellular calcium concentration high, which is when uh, the fluorescence gets brighter, the cells could rapidly control this process. And we showed this in many different ways. And this really showed us that something else was going on, that there was a mechanism to remove pores from the membrane. So, this is another way that is very useful to look at uh, membrane wounding and repair. So, when we are looking at cells that don't have the toxin, we just see this dye, a lipophilic dye, FM143, intercalates on the membrane, gets brighter, but cannot cross the membrane. So, we see it only on the uh, outside of the cells. So, what do you see looping here uh, in conditions without calcium that are not Permissive uh, to repair, we added the toxin and this dye immediately flows uh, into the cells, showing that really they cannot uh, contain uh, the dye because they have uh, gaps on their membrane. So, very interestingly, when we do this in the presence of calcium, the conditions permissive for repair, uh, if you look, there's an in- initial flow of that die into the cells. The movie is looping here. But you see that the cells rapidly control this. And as they are doing this, you see that the membrane is blabbing. And this uh, observation of blabbing on the membrane of cells that are undergoing wounding and repair is actually uh, a common observation that has been seen in many systems. And this has influenced a lot the thinking of investigators, because it's quite tempting when you see extensive blabbing of the membrane if you're dealing with a pore-forming toxin to conclude, well, this is the answer, that the cells are shedding these pores uh, by blabbing. But if you pay attention to what this movie here is showing, is that this blabbing is very transient. And we looked very carefully into this and we found no evidence that these blabs are shed. They are extended and then they retract. And we believe this is happening because the cortical cytoskeleton that is temporarily disrupted by the calcium influx, when it's restored, the blab uh, retracts. And we did experiments to really uh, directly uh, demonstrate this point. What is shown here is that we treated the cells uh, with cytochalasin D, which is a drug that disrupts the actin cytoskeleton. So, again, when we add the toxin and... in, in calcium-free conditions, the dye flows in, indicating that they can't repair. But very interestingly, you see here that the cytochalasin D uh, disruption of the uh, actin cytoskeleton completely abolished the blebbing. But these cells were very uh, capable of blocking the influx of the dye. They actually do it better uh, than uh, cells with an intact cytoskeleton. Uh, This and other experiments persuaded us that we uh, don't believe, at least in the conditions that we have worked, that blabbing is a major factor in the repair of uh, pore-forming toxins. So, what we learned, which was also very informative, so this is measuring the fluorescence intensity inside these cells in these experiments of intracellular flow of FM143, that cells reseal, so they... they block entry of the dye that is seen here uh, in uh, cells in the absence of calcium or cells depleted in ATP. Uh, This control of the calcium influx happens within 30 seconds. And this, for us, was very interesting, because at that point, we didn't know, well, do cells have different mechanisms to repair different types of wounds? Maybe the the pores, these stable pores, are uh, dealt with in a different way. But it is a big coincidence that the cells reseal within the same kinetics that was described before for mechanical wounds by several different labs. So, it's also a fast repair within around 30 seconds. So, this is when the big surprise came. We were not... uh, we were not expecting this at all, but after we had ruled out uh, the blebbing out of the pores... Uh, we started noticing that when we did these experiments with the membrane impermanent dyes, instead of adding it after the injury event, we left the dye since the beginning of the experiment, we saw what we expected, that you see uh, this uh, massive influx of the dye into the cytoplasm if you don't have calcium to promote the resealing. But when you have the cells in the presence of calcium that resealed, uh, we noticed that uh, th- there was accumulation of this dye that had been added extracellularly in small vesicles inside the cell. So, the dye did not enter the cytosol, but appeared inside these small vesicles. So, in this experiment here, done with the help of Derek Tumori at Yale, we used uh, a fluorescent marker for the plasma membrane and then analyzed the fluorescence intensities, what we call chemographs, along these white lines just underneath the plasma membrane. And you can see that in cells not uh, exposed to the toxin in this uh, short period of time of just 180 seconds, there's no significant endocytosis. We don't see uh, signs of plasma membrane moving into the cell. But after adding the toxin, which was added at this red dotted line here, we saw a massive appearance of intracellular vesicles, membrane uh, from the plasma membrane, being carried in the cell. And this started to happen as soon as 12 seconds after the cells were injured. So, this is really what put us on the track of really uh, this... uh, uh, it was quite surprising that nobody had seen this before, because when we looked at these cells, Uh, a few minutes after they had been exposed to the toxins, the cells look like Swiss cheese. They are full of these vesicles that have really this uh, very uh, irregular morphology. I have here a clathrin... a classical clathrin-coated endosome, just for comparison. And we saw that these vesicles did not have a clathrin coat, but they contain markers, which is what these arrows here are pointing to. Uh, that uh, uh, BSA uh, albumin coupled to gold particles that we could see on electron microscopy. So the, the presence of these particles inside these vesicles told us that they originated by endocytosis; they were not pre-existing vesicles. And uh, uh, this uh, really was an important realization because it helps us understand uh, and interpret uh, other experiments. And this can be quantified on electron microscopy, and you can see here that if we chelate calcium, with a calcium chelator in these cultures, uh, there's a big inhibition of the number of these vesicles formed by endocytosis. So, this is uh, the point that I was making before, that uh, studies the model proposed by Paul McNeil was really, in uh, in, in a a big way, uh, guided by the observation of uh, endos... uh, of large compartments... uh, close to the wounds in cells, and uh, also the fact that these compartments became gradually larger. And this is what was proposed as the patch that would be applied to the membrane. But just by adding an endocytic tracer on the outside and doing very similar experiments and wounding these cells, we saw that these vesicles that form close to the wound site, we believe they are endocytic. So, they are moving in by pinching off from the plasma membrane, and they carry extracellular markers with them. And these compartments really get large. And uh, we studied this over time, so you can see here that starting really soon uh, after adding the toxin to the cells, and then uh, fixing and examining these cells by microscopy at different periods of time, we saw that initially uh, small vesicles are formed inside the cells, and they gradually merge with each other. We can see these figures that are very suggestive of uh, homotypic fusion. And then they join these structures that are... Uh, uh, quite well-known with the morphology of late endosomes that have these internal vesicles, they are called multivesicular bodies, uh, which then uh, mature into lysosomes. So, uh, we could show in a series of biochemical experiments that the toxin, because we could follow the toxin that left the plasma membrane and moved all the way into lysosomes, and we could show that this toxin was degraded uh, inside lysosomes. So, what is the link with lysosomal exocytosis, right? I spend a lot of time telling you that there's a direct correlation between the ability of cells to fuse lysosomes with the plasma membrane and their ability to to reseal the membrane. So, uh, the the very interesting link that emerged from our our studies was uh, a lysosomal enzyme, acid sphingomyelinase. Which as uh, shown here in this uh, graph just showing levels of activity of the enzyme using a specific substrate. And we saw that under conditions in which we trigger lysosomal exocytosis, which is permeabilizing the membrane in the presence of calcium, uh, there is a very clearly detectable release of this enzyme into the supernatant. And if we don't have calcium, this does not happen, and this also does not happen spontaneously if the cells are not uh, permeabilized with the toxin. So, uh, what is really interesting about about acid sphingomyelinase is that uh, this uh, enzyme is linked to a serious human disease, which is Niemann-Pick type A and B. So, this is an autosomal recessive disease that In the type A of the disease, as you can see here, again, in this activity uh, plot of uh, cells isolated from these patients, that enzyme levels that are normally seen in normal human controls are uh, almost absent in these uh, patients. And this causes a very severe neurological disease. And these patients don't live long. They die before two years of age. So, we are now investigating this with a mouse model. We are excited with the possibility that... There is also more to be learned about Neiman-Pick type A disease uh, relative to plasma membrane repair, because since these patients really have such a short life, uh, there's not much... uh, many studies done with their tissues. But there is also a mild form of the disease, uh, which is Neiman-Pick type B, in which there are varied levels of expression of this enzyme. And uh, the pathology that uh, appears in these patients is extremely variable. So, uh, it could eventually be very useful to understand and to help these patients with the milder form of the disease if we find out if there are also defects in plasma membrane repair. So, we think, uh, at least uh, in isolated cells in culture, that this is the case, because what is indicated here is a different type of membrane impermeant dye, we, again, wounded cells with a pore forming toxin. In the absence of calcium, we see that the dye enters most of the cells, and we see the nuclei stained with this dye. But when we have calcium, the cells effectively stop this dye influx. In cells from the patients, we have... Uh, a a, a much less efficient ability to block influx of propelium iodide, really uh, indicating a defect that we can measure uh, using an instrument called a flow cytometer, in which if we run cells uh, that are not permeabilized, that were exposed to this dye, you see that most of the cells are in the low-fluorescence end of the spectrum. But by adding the toxin in the absence of calcium, we can see that both cell types, from normal human controls or from the Niemann-Pick patients, they are equally injured, and most of the cells move to the high-fluorescent end. And this graph here, in the presence of calcium, really illustrates how the cells uh, from these patients are less uh, effective in uh, repairing these poor wounds, because uh, more cells... uh, actually, a a difference between 62% of the cells repairing in controls under these conditions to just 30% in these patients. Uh, We could also do experiments in the lab uh, using uh, RNAi-mediated silencing to really uh, reduce the levels of these enzymes uh, in HeLa cells. And what you can see looping here is, uh, again, without calcium, you see the FM143 dye flowing into the cells in response to the pore-forming toxin. The cells can control this very well, which is what is indicated in this panel here, that you don't see fluorescence. But when we reduce expression levels of this enzyme, we see that the defect appears. Uh, Some of these cells are really not able to stop the dye from flowing in. And remarkably, just by adding acid sphingomyelinase to the uh, uh, supernatant outside of these cells, we can really repair these defects. So, this really indicated for us something very exciting, that this enzyme is working on the outside of cells to remodel the plasma membrane and promote this process of repair. So, around this time, uh, uh, we were very happy to see this completely independent study coming out of Don Higelman's lab, in which, using completely different techniques, electrophysiology, and measuring membrane capacitance, he detected what he called massive calcium-activated endocytosis. And he showed that this form of endocytosis followed exocytosis. And this endocytosis, interestingly, could be triggered by elevation in intracellular calcium, like we see, or by adding to the cells extracellular sphingomyelinase. Uh, Also, uh, uh, very similar to the results that we see with uh, acid sphingomyelinase from lysosomes. So, how would this be working? Uh, You have... uh, uh, there's several studies emerging recently uh, in which we are understanding really much better how uh, sphingomyelinase works on membranes. And the substrate of uh, sphingomyelinase is this very abundant lipid on the outer uh, leaflet of the plasma membrane of cells, sphingomyelin. And when the head group of sphingomyelin is cleaved, uh, it, uh, it generates ceramide, which is a lipid known to coalesce and to form these microdomains that have the tendency to invaginate in cells you can see this directly in this experiment shown here that was done with uh, giant liposomes that contain a sphingomyelin and just by adding with a micropipette a sphingomyelinase at this uh, spot on this giant liposome you can see the formation of an invagination that uh, uh, is being formed by the accumulation of ceramide on this membrane So this really brings us to something quite interesting and we think this is really going to help us understand many different aspects of membrane biology is that it has been known for quite some time and there's a lot of interest in this that there are microdomains on the plasma membrane that are called lipid rafts that are enriched in sphingolipids and cholesterol. And these microdomains uh, segregate from other lipids, and they have specific functions that are still being investigated. And there is a very interesting structure, uh, caviola, which uh, involves these lipid-raft domains. And they uh, form these very defined morphological structures with the help of cold proteins called caviolins and additional proteins called cavins that stabilize these domains in an invaginated form on the membrane. And there has been a lot of discussion whether these are stable structures on the membrane, if their function is to uh, flatten out and release membrane tension, or if they also function as endocytic vesicles. So, what we saw, uh, and I showed you before, that the initial vesicles that we saw just looking 30 seconds after we permeabilized cells with a pore-forming toxin, uh, when we looked first at control cells that we don't... uh, did not add any toxin, we see occasional caviola, as expected, along the plasma membrane. Many different cells express this. But very interestingly, caviola are more abundant in cells that are more frequently under... Mechanical stress, such as muscle and endothelial cells, but in this case here we're just looking at at a, at a normal uh, epithelial cell, in which we saw that after we added the toxin, there was a really very uh, a significant increase in the number of these small vesicles that had the size and the morphology very consistent with vesicles that would have been generated from caviola on the plasma membrane. And very interestingly, uh, without injuring this membrane at all, just by treating the cells with sphingomyelinase on the outside, we could also increase the number of these caviola-like structures. Uh, We could show, using several important controls, in which... Uh, we can distinguish uh, what is inside the cells from what is outside, we could show that uh, labeled toxin colocalizes inside cells in compartments that have the marker for caviola... uh, cav1... caveolin 1. And uh, you can see here, uh, in the overlay, there was pretty good colocalization with several of these compartments, indicating that the Toxin does travel into cells. And we did electromicroscopy as well, using gold of different sizes. The small uh, gold indicates the toxin, and the large particles indicates the marker for caviola. So, you can see here in these vesicles of the size expected for caviola, there is uh, clearly detectable the presence of the toxin, uh, consistent with our hypothesis that the toxin is being removed from the cell surface and trafficking into cells by endocytosis of these caviola structures. Uh, If we inhibit the expression of this protein uh, required for the formation of caviola, using the same assay of this intracellular flow of uh, FM143, Uh, we can see in the control cells uh, exactly the fact that I showed you several times, that when you don't have calcium, you have the dye flowing. Uh, When you have calcium, the cells control this. And by uh, using RNAi to deplete cells in this uh, protein that is necessary for the formation of caviola, you see that uh, the dye starts to flow in, uh, which is quantified in this purple line here, indicating a, a partial defect that is not as strong as when we don't have any... Calcium, but it's a clearly detectable defect uh, in, um, repair, in in removal uh, of this pore from the membrane and the blockage of uh, entry of the dye. So, what is really interesting in all this is uh, as it, uh, one of the most gratifying things in science that sometimes, after many years, we find these unexpected links with a literature that already exists. So, there are many papers, for many years, uh, uh, the proteins necessary to form caviola. Uh, Caviolin and cavin have been studied and have been linked in humans to serious pathology both in skeletal muscle and in cardiomyocytes and of course this could be related to additional functions of caviola, but uh, since uh, it is so common to see muscle pathology in uh, mutations associated with proteins required for repair uh, we are, were very excited uh, to see that this uh, is evidence that already exists for caviolins, these proteins necessary to form uh, these special structures, caviola. So, what about cells that don't express uh, caviola... that don't contain caviola because they don't express the proteins, like caviolins, necessary to form these structures? So, we investigated this in collaboration with a wonderful colleague at Maryland, uh, Sia Song, and what we learned is that, very interestingly, B lymphocytes that do not have caviola, they also respond to injury to their membrane with exocytosis of lysosomes, and then uh, uh, rapidly with a form of endocytosis. But in the absence of caviolin that normally fo- forms these very defined uh, structures of a very defined size, we saw these tubules, longer uh, invaginations of the membrane, that were also associated with the ability of these lymphocytes to reseal the membrane. So what we are excited about is that these protocols of membrane injury and repair may provide a long sought trigger for this form of endocytosis. Several groups are very interested in what we called clathrin-independent and uh, caviola-independent form of lipid raft endocytosis. And there has been a lot of variation between labs. And we are uh, speculating that maybe these variations come from... uh, uh, unintended uh, injury of cells, because we know that cells... uh, the plasma membrane of cells can get injured just when cells are crawling through cells or interacting with different surfaces. So, we are now investigating if we can use membrane wounding to see if this is a process that can be triggered, particularly in cells that don't express caviola, and if we can learn more about this process. So, I want to to leave you with this uh, uh, provocative concept that what we are thinking is that uh, a very important element of the plasma membrane repair is actually remodeling of the plasma membrane. It is a process that happens as a consequence of the release of lysosomal hydrolases on the cell surface. And we have direct evidence for, uh, for a role for acid sphingomyelinase. But we also think that other hydrolases in lysosomes, like proteases, could be involved in facilitating the generation of ceramide, which may be the trigger for the formation of these membrane invaginations and endocytosis that can carry lesions into cells uh, for degradation. So, this has really been a a great adventure for us uh, in the lab, and this is uh, really what uh, I think is a great example of how you should keep your eyes open uh, in the lab, because sometimes you can be studied something completely different, like we were studying invasion of a parasite, and you stumble into something that gradually, although very unexpected, uh, little by little, starts making sense. And this is an extremely gratifying part of science because nature, once in a while, gives us these little glimpses uh, of really uh, beautiful complexity of biological uh, systems. And we have to be humble, and we have to be aware that what we are seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. But in many cases, following this process can really uh, be very useful uh, in in several important interventions, uh, including disease. So, I'll end here by acknowledging wonderful people, again, that that, are present and past members of my lab, and also collaborators, that I mention their work uh, in this part of my talk. Thank you.